Putin appeals to the American people with his plans for Syria. How can chemical weapons be destroyed? We talk to someone who knows. The Afghan National Army suffers big losses in Sangin and what life was like for the women working at Churchill's School for Spies. You know, I lied to everybody. I lied to my friends. I had to. But people accepted it. I just said, oh, I'm working for a ministry, you know. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a direct personal appeal to the American people on Syria. Writing in the New York Times, he warns that any U.S. military strike against Syria would spread chaos across the Middle East and unleash a new wave of terrorism and could throw the entire system of international law and order out of balance. He also says intervention in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya has proved ineffective and pointless. I'm joined today by Professor Eric Grove, who has just taken up appointment as Professor of Naval History and Senior Fellow in Security Studies at Liverpool Hope University and also by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee who joins us today from his sick bed. Uh, Christopher, how's the voice holding up? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's in code. Hopefully it'll get better from here. Uh, Eric Grove, good to speak to you today. Why has, why has Putin done this? Well, well I think he's trying to, trying to maximise his effect. I mean, he's, he or, I think he thinks he's riding rather high, actually, at the moment, and that he can exploit a situation to make himself appear to be a peacemaker. I mean, people are even talking about him being, having the Nobel Prize to match Obama's. Uh, and, and, and so I think he's, he's trying to use every tool in the armoury, and, of course, in this new post-Cold War world, uh, using the press, the New York Times in particular, one of the most quality American newspapers, is a good way of having influence, given the fact that Obama has put himself at the mercy of the American people and uh, perhaps and certainly the, the, of the American Congress. Interesting you say that, at the mercy of the American people, because everyone this week, from Bashar al-Assad to Obama to Putin, now seem to be playing to the American public for their support. What, why is that, Christopher? Um, because the um, American public will decide for the Congress how it votes eventually. Uh, Congress doesn't have to vote now, not for some time, unless the whole thing goes pear-shaped. And that's the important thing. If a, if, a, if a congressman comes back to Washington and says, listen, my people, people that vote me in, don't like this, then the uh, president's got trouble. I thought in that New York Times, Putin was saying, listen, the Americans' uh, sort of attitude is that you, you, you use force to fix things. It's just the opposite of what Obama wanted that. Obama didn't want to get involved. He was forced into it. He made the most stupid statement some weeks ago saying, if you use chemical weapons, you've crossed a red line. That was very difficult. No experienced politician should actually set a date line. We all know that. He did. And from that point, he was on the back foot. And Eric Grove, Obama will be annoyed by this article, though, won't he? Well... Uh, perhaps, although I think I've, I've had the impression now, ever since he made that surprise speech to say he wasn't going to attack, um, which was brought on, I think, by the British vote as much as anything else, that uh, he doesn't. In his heart of hearts, I don't think he wants to attack. He came into office making a lot of a lot of rhetoric about, oh, it's going to be very different. We aren't going to use military power the same way that the Bush administration used it. We are different, as Chris has so rightly said just now. He has painted himself very much into a corner and very unwisely. And I think the way things are going. Uh, even with, with Putin on board and saying some very reasonable things on, on paper, uh, that in fact this might be the way out he is looking for. He's, he's, he, um, he's going for the rope over the side of the ship, having found himself in very deep water. 
Yeah, and one thing that he does write, actually, the potential strike by the United States against Syria, despite strong opposition from many countries and major political and religious leaders, including the Pope, will yes. result in more innocent victims and an escalation, potentially spreading the conflict far beyond Syria's borders. Um, Eric, since when has the uh, President, President Putin, cared about what the Pope thinks? Well, no, but I think, uh, you know, it's uh, the Orthodox Church, is now, which has relatively good relations with the Western Church these days, uh, is quite an important component and might be termed the Putinist establishment. Uh, and I think he's just using every propaganda tool. After all, he's an ex-KGB man. He knows what <laughs> propaganda is. And that, and that he's using every propaganda tool he can to make himself appear to be basically the arbiter of the situation, supporting the UN, stopping at... Uh, stopping American airstrikes, getting major revisions in American policy. I mean, it's all gain from Putin's point of view. Christopher, has, has the Russian president ever directly addressed the American people before? Uh, not in this way. Not in this way. Not jump it. You do it in a formal place. Like you go to the Senate and you, you make a, a senatorial uh, address. I'll tell you one thing. Putin shows a sense of humour here. Many years ago when Stalin was on the throne in, uh, in what was then the Soviet Union... He was advised, be careful, because the Pope won't like this. Hmm. And Stalin turned around and said, and how many divisions has the Pope? And so I think there is a, is a, is a wonderful sort of, uh, wonderful sort of uh, line which we should neglect. But I tell you, there's another side of this. There are a lot of people who might say that this war, this negotiation over CW, was going absolutely nowhere until Obama said, listen, we may just zap you. At that point, what happens? You've got Assad himself talking to American television. Everything is sort of on hold. There is a possibility, no more than a possibility at the moment, that this whole CW thing can be cleaned up. Uh, and that's because there was a threat from Washington to, to, to bomb them. But you don't need CW to kill tens of thousands of Syrians, which is what, mm. uh, which is what Assad's people are doing. All right, gentlemen, stay with us, and let, let's stay on the subject of chemical weapons for the moment. Putin's article is, is published on the day that senior American and Russian officials are due to discuss Russia's proposals for putting Syria's chemical arsenal under international control. Although the idea has been rejected by the opposition Free Syrian Army, but if there were to be an agreement on destroying the chemical weapons, how could it be done? A little earlier I spoke to Chris Abbott, who's a chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear specialist. I asked him if a UN resolution was passed and Syria declared declared the size and location of its stockpile of chemical weapons, what would happen next? I think the first thing that would have to happen is that those sites would have to be secured um, to international standards. And I think there will be some significant challenges about who would do that. Um, potentially, you could put a, a small UN force in there to do it. But they, the sites must be secure um, to a satisfactory standard so that international inspectors could go in there and start to look at uh, what to do to dispose of the munitions. And how do they actually get to oversee this, uh, the, the situation? Uh, with great difficulty. It will, it will require goodwill on all sides. What would happen to the actual production facilities themselves, and assuming you get the UN experts in? Well, the production facilities could be dismantled. Um, that probably um, is the slightly easier part um, of what would need to be done. Um, although there is always difficulty in, make, in making sure you've identified what are the production facilities because of the potential of dual-use capabilities and something is dressed up as producing uh, something else, such as fertiliser rather than and, and as, as well as being able to do chemical agents. It's difficult to know exactly what Syria has, and Syria, first of all, has to admit that it has uh, chemical weapons. 
how big a project is it? How many people would have to be involved? How many scientists, for example? It's difficult to say. Um, you know, certainly in the hundreds, uh, probably in the low hundreds. I'm, I'm trying to think back to um, Iraq post the invasion of, or take back of Kuwait in 1991 when uh, force went in to dispose of the Iraqi chemical weapons and there was a reasonably uh, significant force. And it's not just the scientists, it's all the additional support personnel that are needed to make it happen. And is it possible to actually get rid of chemical weapons when the country is in the middle of a civil war? I think that's where the greatest challenge lies. I refer back to Iraq. Um, at least Iraq by and large when they were doing that in the 90s was a relatively benign environment. There was, an op there was not an open civil war as there is now. And um, I think ensuring the safety and security of the operation uh, would be of paramount importance and particularly difficult. You mentioned Iraq. Um, weapons inspectors there were never able to declare that every last weapon was dealt with. What's the hope for Syria? I think exactly the same problem arises. We rely, and the inspectors rely, on an accurate and open declaration. And if Assad, the Assad regime wants to do exactly the same as Saddam Hussein did, which is not to be totally open, then there will always be, as there was in Iraq right the way through to 2003, the doubt that there might be something left, there might be something hidden. And how big do you think Syria's stockpile of chemical weapons is? Well, there's talk of it being in the, uh, around 1,000 tonnes of chemical agents and precursor chemicals, um, some hundreds of tonnes of sulphur mustard and hundreds of tonnes of sarin, and then some tens of tonnes of VX. But, um, you know, that's open source information, and it's, it's difficult to be accurate. They have certainly spent some years um, developing, uh, developing these agents. Chris Abbott speaking to me a little earlier. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the MOD's made some big announcements on kit at the DSEI Arms Fair. We hear from the Defence Equipment Minister about the future for procurement. And what was life like for the women working at Churchill's School for Spies? This week it was reported that Afghan security forces in Sangin have lost more men in just a few months of fighting than British troops did there in five years. BFBS reporter Jeff Mead joins us from Camp Bastion. Hello, Jeff. What do you make of these figures? Where have they come from? Well, I think they're very believable because they do accord with the impression and the information we're getting here is that Afghan casualties this summer have way outstripped those sustained by ISAF, uh, even when foreign forces were bearing the, the brunt of the fighting. In this uh, Times article, they're attributed to the head of Sangin District, so it seems a strong source, uh, the district council head there, but they haven't been officially published outside the article, and it is increasingly difficult to obtain official Afghan casualty figures. The Defence Ministry stopped publishing monthly returns, although numbers recently issued for police fatalities across the country showed their rate of losses had doubled, with 1,792 officers killed since March, including Hellman's most senior policewoman. And why has Sangin always been such a difficult area for those responsible for its security? It's partly geography, partly politics. Uh, the town has about 14,000 people. It sits astride Route 611, 60 miles northeast of Lashkar. It's an important trading centre and was formerly ruled by a combination of two factions, Kate, the Opium Barons and the Taliban, two powerful groups, both with good reason to resist control by the government and resent the presence of foreign forces. So the British arrived in strength there in about in 2006, embarking on the so-called platoon house strategy where they defended government compounds against repeated assaults that saw some of the most intense fighting since the Korean War. 
the area was taken over by the US Marines two years ago and then Afghan forces and did quieten considerably. Although as recently as July, British troops were back in the front line as forward air controllers aiding a successful Afghan push against a resurgent enemy. And what reasons being given for these heavy losses? Well, it's difficult to actually get into that side of the story because there's very little uh, frontline reporting of Afghan operations, so it's hard to account for that in first hand. Also, there are new restrictions uh, imposed by the Afghan government on foreign journalists. Uh, I do take issue with the Times piece because it describes Afghan forces as poorly armed. Well, their personal equipment's more than a match for the enemies. What they do lack is their own close air support and airborne casualty evacuation. That still depends on ISAF. And they nowhere near enjoy the same level of protected vehicles that, that NATO has. Talking here to the British who train them, they say there's a different approach to risk too. And mm. Afghans can exhibit quite a fatalistic attitude to danger. Their bravery is not in doubt. But the current casualty levels, and also remember desertion is said to be running at about 3% a month, has been described as ISAF's commanding four-star as serious and possibly unsustainable. If General Dunford is right, then with NATO combat forces committed to withdrawing, there's clearly a gap the enemy's already recognised and is seeking to exploit. Mm, Professor Eric Grove, possibly unsustainable. What does this say about these areas when international forces leave, do you think? Well, it shows that, that uh, after, the, after the withdrawal, uh, things are probably going to hot up. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, uh, everyone said, of course, that, that all the Taliban were waiting for was, in fact, for, the, for ISAF to withdraw, at least, at least to, to a very large extent. And then there'd be, and then there'd be major offensives. This heavy fighting is taking place. I, th I think the analysis we've just heard is extremely good. They they fight in a very different way. Uh, the British forces are naturally very, very casualty averse. They have good body armour. They have protected vehicles, etc. The Afghans have a rather different cult uh, a cultural attitude. They I suppose they they charge the enemy and they get mown down. I mean, how far this can this uh, this can go on? I, I find actually the desertion rates rather more troubling. Actually, I mean, if a lot of the if if, if enough people of the Afghan armed forces do decide to vote with their feet and go home and not care really who takes over, then then. And uh, the, uh, the general's latest comments would seem to be rather apposite. Uh, Christopher, um, NATO is uh, bringing out a report this week on Afghanistan. It, tell us a bit more about that. Um, yeah, NATO military committee, committee is meeting tomorrow and uh, Saturday in, uh, in Hungary. And this is the 28 chiefs of staff. Uh, general Dunford, the commander ISAF, is going to go to that meeting and he's going to give the sort of answers the sort of report that we're puzzling over now um, and the fact that the, the what are his expectations for the Afghan force, I mean, 3% uh, for example desertion rate is quite high but then you start to have to look at it in detail people in the Afghan army desert when there are crops to be pulled in uh, that's an important factor so you have to look at it all over the year but also the figures if you believe the French which are very good at this sort of thing because they work through the medical charities they're telling us that 23% increase on last year in Afghan figures one of the reasons is as um, we've just been saying it's civilians well yeah these are civilians you see and also the military as Jeff says they've got a different attitude to, to doing the job but also they don't have the battlefield uh, medical expertise that the ISAF uh, uh, force have and they don't have the ability to get somebody out who's just had a leg blown off and get them back to Birmingham this weekend frankly that's what's part of the problem 
Very briefly, uh, Christopher, do you think we're actually going to know the detail of this report that General Dunford presents? I think we'll know it probably by tomorrow evening uh, because NATO is very, very keen to get this out, get it on the ground and get people discussing it. It's a big, big thing to do because what has been discovered in Afghanistan over 10 years is going to decide so very much how Af- uh, NATO plans its future operations, which it doesn't know about, its future operations starting next month in the exercise that uh, starts uh, exercise period that starts next month. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Jeff Mead in Afghanistan, thank you for your time today. It's been described as the world's largest arms fair. Defence and Security Equipment International, or DSEI, has been going on at London's Excel Centre all this week. Industry representatives have been meeting government figures from around the world at the event, which has seen the Ministry of Defence make several big announcements about kit. BFBS reporter Will Inglis spoke to Defence Equipment Minister Philip Dunn and asked him how a strong British defence industry helps him in his job. Well, we're keen to encourage a, a vibrant d- domestic defence industry uh, to supply many of the needs of our forces. And it's critical that we have a healthy industry which is internationally competitive because that helps to sustain production runs for the equipment that's being supplied to our own forces and ultimately helps to bring down the cost to the taxpayer of supplying our forces with the battle-winning equipment they need. Now, I know that this government uh, has already taken steps to reform defence procurement. Um, And part of that going forward uh, could well be the part privatisation of defence equipment and support into a a go-co in the the jargon, terrible as it is. Um, Is that really a good idea? Is that the, the best value for money? Well, the jargon is quite important here since we're not talking about privatisation. We're talking about potentially, and the decision will be taken uh, in about nine months' time, looking to bring introduce private sector skills and expertise into our existing DENS, which would continue to be government-owned, contractor-operated. That's what it means. It will be government-owned. We think that we've done a lot to help take inefficiency out of our procurement system by balancing the budget, by setting out a 10-year forward-looking equipment plan. But we think we need to do more as part of defence transformation to ensure that we have uh, match-fit capability to negotiate our procurement contracts uh, as we go along. And we think that there are many skills that we would benefit from. They're available in the private sector and are expensive for us to hire in to support DENS uh, as we do at the moment. So we think this it's an innovative, it's a complex procurement in itself uh, and it's going to take some time to reach a decision but we think it's exa- absolutely right to explore it and we will decide, as I say, uh, in the spring of next year whether we'd go ahead with it or not. Do you worry about conflict of interest? The white paper really did seem to sidestep this slightly by suggesting it would be up to any winning bidder to to come up with a creative way of preventing that. But if someone who owes their loyalty, their career to Company A is choosing between Company A and Company B for something or negotiating with Company A, isn't there a risk that the taxpayer might end off out of pocket as a result? Well, we're we're conscious of conflicts of interest and we had some 20-odd companies expressed an interest uh, in participating in this uh, procurement for a GoCo contractor, and a number of those companies, on further investigation, understanding what it meant, decided not to proceed. For the very, and we also pointed out to them that there were some clear conflicts. Those were already major suppliers to the MOD that that wasn't appropriate. So each of the companies that are in the consortia that are going through the competition now have been carefully assessed 
to handle any existing conflicts of interest, uh, and we think that that can be handled quite properly. Uh, the, the loyalty in in the future to those people who are currently working in DNS and who might TP across to a uh, a new uh, new entity will be to that entity. They will, we think, have. Uh, better prospects for terms and conditions working in that environment than they do at present within uh, the MOD environment. And we think that that will, uh, will help to ensure we have better retention rates within DNS than we do at the moment. That was the Defence Equipment Minister, Philip Dunn, talking to our reporter, Will Inglis, at DSEI. Christopher Lee, the government seems keen on it, but is semi-privatising defence equipment and support the right thing to do? I think that it might not have been, let's say, 10, 15 years ago it's becoming increasingly so. If you go back, say, 30 years ago, when the 30 years when this whole idea came, came into being, it was in something called the uh, Joint Programme Group within NATO, and the idea was that nobody, for example, the British, could not have a single aircraft industry anymore. You had to line up with the French, etc., etc. The EU and also the NATO procurement programme now says you've got to get bangs for the buck. You have to do that and you can't res- afford the research programmes. And so the idea that you may get, for example, as, uh, as Will was talking about, um, you know, company A having different sort of policies and, and loyalties than company B no longer exists. But you, you look back what's happened. For example, the Jaguar aircraft, which was produced by Britain and France, when the salesman went out, what did the French do? They tried to sell the Mirage. Hmm. <laughs> and, and there's always going to be that suspicion. But it is, the, it is not simply the way forward. It is the way it is. The biggest problem is going to be the transfer of technology. And when you start trying to get, say, t- technology from the United States, the Americans will say, we're not going to give you technology to put in your aircraft or in your planes uh, or your ships or whatever, or your, your equipment, because we don't know who you're going to sell them to. Eric Grover, this fair, there's a big Royal Navy presence yes, there. Yes, I was there. Were you? Did, <laughs> yes. you? did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. It's very very interesting, very enjoyable, very enlightening, in fact. And wh- which were the big Navy announcements that really struck you? Well, I think I think it was more, actually, the recognition that, in fact, the, the, the lion's share of the future equipment programme is for the Navy, mm-hmm. with the aircraft carriers, the Type 26 Global Combat Ship. And this new missile defence system. Yeah, I mean, so all this is... And, and all this is going to take up a very large part of the programme. Another... No tra- wonder you enjoyed it. That's right. Another... And the Navy is running... Is riding high at the moment. Admiral Zimbellus, the first Sea Lord, gave a very upbeat, upbeat speech, both behind closed doors in the IUSI conference and also openly the morning after. Are you surprised by this, Eric? Well, I think um, not really in the sense if you analyse pretty coolly what's going to happen if all goes well with the Navy, with the coming back of carrier strike and this side of thing and the new ship programme and the new tankers for the RFA, it all actually adds up to something quite optimistic. And I think the First Sea Lord is very, very good in articulating that optimism in a very direct kind of way. The danger, of course, is when the ar- it dawns on the army that all they're going to get is about 5%, and mm. then they might start striking back. Christopher, and they say this is the biggest arm fa- arms fair in the world. Not bad for a small island no one listens to. How important is it for Britain to hold an event like this? We're about the third, maybe <laughs> the fourth, third biggest arms salesman in the world. Um, we have probably got the, the, the most inventive and certain operationally uh, busy uh, armed forces in the world. Maybe the second maybe the third, no lower than that. So it's quite right. I'll tell you one thing about the, Eric getting all steamed up and, and glorious about the Navy having all those wonderful ships and bits of kit there. Maybe, maybe it will allow the first sea lord 
to ponder the fact that he's still got more admirals than he has ships. Christopher Lee, stay with us. But for now, uh, Professor Eric Grove, uh, good to speak to you. Thanks for your time today. All the best with the new This news. is BFBS. Sit rep. A member of Churchill's Secret Army has released her memoirs in a new book. Noreen Riels joined the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, at 18 and worked with her fellow operatives to support the French resistance. Noreen was sworn to secrecy, and while she was officially a secretary at what became known as Churchill's School for Spies, she spent most of her time helping to train undercover agents and meeting those returning from behind enemy lines. She spoke to SITREP's Claire Sadler. Of course they were fearful. Brave men are always afraid, you know. If they're not, they tend to do foolish things and take unnecessary risks, um, endangering not only their own lives but the lives of others. They were afraid. You know, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the, it's the willingness, the, the grit that's necessary to face that fear. And they faced that fear and they left. You did get close, I think, to one British agent, didn't you? But I don't think it ended very happily, did it? No, it, it didn't end happily because um, he didn't come back. But I think most, a lot of women who work for SOE had their hearts broken, you know. It was inevitable. You were just 18 when he joined yeah. the yeah. SOE, yeah. so a, a young woman. You must have transformed from a, a girl into a woman overnight with what you experienced. Well, shall we say that um, when I joined SOE, I was a self-assured young woman with my whole life before me. I planned the whole thing. You know, I knew exactly where I was going and what I was going to do. Well, I didn't do any of it. And when the war ended, I, I was no longer that self-assured old a young woman. I was a woman, not a girl anymore, but I was a woman who'd suffered, and that changes you. The government didn't uh, open its files to the public revealing the work of the SOE until 2000. Yeah. That was a long time after your mother died, so she yeah. never knew about and the work. my father. <laughs> they never knew about the work that you did. How difficult was it to keep that secret for all those years? Well, you know, during the war, people did keep secrets because there was up on the wall, there were these posters saying, careless talk costs lives. And um, so it w wasn't difficult because... Um, when I left the lycée and was out of the clutches of those wild young Frenchmen, my mother moved to Bath, so she was out of the way. My father was in the Far East, we didn't see him for four years, and my little brother was at school in Yorkshire, and he didn't care anyway what I was up to. So I became a very good liar. You know, I lied to everybody, I lied to my friends, I had to, but people accepted it. I just said, oh, I'm working for a ministry, you know, and a lot of people work for ministries, and as I had languages, it, it, that was accepted as normal. And what about after the war? Did you keep in touch with those friends you'd made? No. After the war, I wanted to put it behind me. I refused to join the club that the Riff Survivors had, had uh, the SOE club that they had founded. I didn't want to see any of them, especially those whose men had survived. I didn't want to see their happiness. I was a selfish little beast, you know. I, I was wrapped up in myself and... Um, I thought that I could turn the page, and but you can't turn the page on six years of war, you know. It colours you, and it colours your dreams quite a lot. And um, I didn't turn the page, but uh, I thought I could. That was Noreen Reels, author of The Secret Ministry of Ag and Fish, talking to Claire Sadler. Now, perhaps the worst-kept secret, it's been announced the Duke of Cambridge is leaving the armed forces. Christopher, you've been expecting this for a while, haven't you? 
spend more time with the medals. That's what I say. And what have you missed? <laughs> um, yeah, I think he, I tell you who miss him. Miss him is the RAF. He's probably been. I mean, because you know he didn't join the RAF immediately, but the RAF will miss him because he's been the best PR man. Best ab- for, for the for the RAF they've had for a long time, and he's been very effective, hasn't he, in search and rescue? Well, he's picked up, I think, about 149 people in his uh, um, in, in his rescue operations. But you know, earlier Eric was talking about uh, how the Navy is doing rather well out of all of this, and the Army is not doing so well out of defence things. The RAF is about to hit back, and um, they'll be losing one of their best PR objects, but. Look at the royal family at the moment. The Queen, in her 80s, spending uh, less time with public duties. And uh, it's, the, it's the old order changing okay. to give way to new things. Uh, Christopher, briefly before we go, a uh, big news you have on Chinese naval exercises. Do you remember when the Americans said, look, we're not spending as much time in, in NATO, we're going to look into the Pacific? We thought, oh, they're trying to keep, keep the Chinese Indeed. under control. No. They're doing things together. I hear that RIMPAC, which is the Rim of the Pacific operation, which is the biggest naval operation uh, exercise in the world, the Chinese are going to join in with, right alongside them, their new partners, the Americans. Mm. Thanks very much, Christopher. You made it through the programme. That's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Eric Grove and to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBSSITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. SITREP is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chubbo, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is B.